safety of this. You got my own, there we go. Um, so whether it's planting a church in inner city, inner city Atlanta, like James, who spoke a couple Sundays ago, or whether it's working with military folks in the D.C. area, which we saw a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night, or here working with college students in Wisconsin. You know how you know this is in the upper Midwest? They had a sign that said pizza and pop. Did you see that? <laughs> like, yeah, that's definitely in the Midwest, yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's just great, you know, we, we, we're able to, so when you give to Lottie, not Lottie Moon, the Annie Armstrong offering, you know, you're supporting that work, truly, like literally, like we're supporting that work, planting among college students, um, doing ministry among military people, um, working within church plants in different cities, and so just a wonderful thing as we continue to think. Really, we've got two more Sundays, I think, as we give to the Annie Armstrong offering. One other thing before we get into the word, um, Lisa Connor and I were talking about this, and then Shannon and I struck up conversation about this thinking about ways to invite people, thinking about ways to kind of have an impact here in our immediate community. Um, there's, there's an endless number of, of these of opportunities and things like that. Um, but we wondered if, so for instance, uh, and this is just an example, and, and I think even Lisa would agree this is a good example, but you know, driving by Dunkin' Donuts on a Sunday morning or on any morning, morning see how long that line is? I mean, just cars snaking out all over the place. I mean, imagine if there was a way that we could pay for people that are in there and say, hey, we're paying for your coffee. We're paying for your donut. We want to invite you to church. You know? Now, now uh, there, there's, there's several different ways you can do this. Now, on one hand, and it might be that one of you happens to know the manager there. If you do, come talk to me or the assistant manager. I mean, so it might be that we have a connection in the church. It's probably a long shot. I, I don't know of anybody who has a connection there. But, but then talking to Shannon, and again, this is something that, that, that people in, in many other places have done. In fact, I had this done to me the other day. Um, but apparently Billy, and I don't know if Billy's still in here, might slip downstairs, but you know, apparently, you know, sort of you have a card, Starnes Cove Baptist Church, our address, service times, and when you buy, so you buy someone's breakfast, you buy someone's lunch or whatever it is, and you ask the cashier, hey, I'm, I'm buying them a lunch, would you give them this card? And then they're getting, they pull up and they think they're going to have to buy their burger and their fries or whatever it is, and they say, oh, that person in front of you just paid for your, your lunch or whatever, they wanted me to give you this. And it's an invitation to the church. Kind of a neat little touch. And so that, that kind of takes out some of the guesswork. We're thinking, okay, we've got to give some money somehow here and hope that they'll give it, you know, and things like that. So, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities we can do like that. So I kind of like that one. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it shows a little touch of sort of love, right? Hey, I'm paying for your burger or your donut or whatever it is. And uh, so, so many things like that that we can be thinking about that we don't have to go to Madison, Wisconsin to do it. We could. But there's even a lot that we can do here, things the way we can invite people like that. And very often, when you kind of just show that little touch of, of love, um, you know, giving a meal like we do on Wednesday nights down here, that often goes a long way in terms of showing someone like, hey, maybe they actually care about me. They don't just, you know, want something from me. You know, well, we want something from you. We want you because we care about you. We don't want your money. We care about you. So, so many opportunities like that. And if you happen to do, you do know someone at, at uh, you know, a local restaurant or something, let me know, and maybe there's a way we can work that out. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 7. Please go there with me. And uh, we're really at sort of a, there's a linchpin here in the book, and, and you'll feel it as we go through. Uh, last week, we saw uh, people finish the great construction project that Nehemiah came all the way from Persia um, for this great project of rebuilding the wall, and it hasn't been easy, right? Kind of each week, you're you know, there's a challenge, right? An internal challenge, an external challenge, a challenge specifically to Nehemiah. Uh, there's been a lot of obstacles that he's had to overcome. But now with Nehemiah's original mission completed, the wall is done, right? We saw that last week. 
Um, now they can turn their attention to really having a more lasting impact. The wall had to be done for them to do what they're going to do within the city of Jerusalem. And so chapter 7 is this major transition point. Now that the wall is rebuilt, we saw that chapters 1 through 6. Now chapter 7 is sort of part, you know, going into part 2 for where we'll be for the rest of our study. Nehemiah has a, a passionate drive. We can sense it in his own words. We can sense it in his actions. He has a drive to revitalize this city, the city of David, the city of God's people. Um, he has this, this drive in him to rebuild a city that has been laid not, not even dormant. Dormant would be nice. It's really laid in ruins for decades. And so he has this burden to, to revitalize this city, but it's not merely structural. I mean, we could think that because the wall and all the construction, and again, that needed to be done. It's not merely economic. He's not trying to make money. He's not, he doesn't get commission off this. He's, it's, not, it's not simply a, you know, something that he's going to sort of has some economic interest, but he longs for a spiritual reformation that would renew and reestablish God's people, and that's, that's where we're going to be for the rest of the book. That's what we're going to see really clearly here. The, the brick and mortar in these walls and in the rest of the city that we're going to see, and there's a lot more building to be had, truly, a whole lot. It's, it's always to serve a greater purpose. It's not a, it's not a means, it's not, a, it's not an end in itself, right? It's really a means to an end. And God has sort of laid this on Nehemiah's heart. And uh, so we'll begin by reading just the first uh, four verses. We're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, we'll read just a few verses here to begin, and then I'll kind of just give some commentary as we go through. So if you would, look at chapter 7 beginning with the first verse. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Henani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot and while they are still standing guard. Let them shut, the bar, shut and bar the doors." Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at the guard post and some in front of their homes. The city was wide and large, meaning it's, it's a big city, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So even there at the end, we kind of get a sense of the state of the city, right, of Jerusalem. But once the project is finished, really the first thing that we're going to see him do in these, in these entry verses here is uh, he's going to appoint leaders, going to appoint some workers, and he's going to appoint leaders over them. Uh, sort of the workers here, kind of your basic logistic, he's going to appoint gatekeepers, and, uh, and they're there to keep watch over the city, right? Because there is still a threat. There's a reason that there was such, such an importance on, on them uh, building these walls. So he's going to do that, and they're going to be important for the security. But then he appoints Hanani and Hananiah to have charge over the city, oversight, administrative leadership over the city over its safety and over what is going to be this project to rebuild it. And according to the text, if you look there, what, what was it that he saw in Hananiah? Why does he choose Hananiah over the dozens or hundreds of other people? You see what it was? He's faithful. There's two things. He's faithful, and then what's the other thing that he says? He's, well, that's right, integrity. He, he's God-fearing, right? And you notice this is like the third time that's come up since we've been in here. And so out of all the other people that he could look at, he says in verse 2, for he was more faithful, and I think that would have integrity in there as well, and God-fearing, he was a, he was a more God-fearing man than many. So he was, he was more God-fearing than the average man. It's in verse 2. 
So Nehemiah is looking for godly leaders, and that's going to be essential for this work. It's not just someone who knows how, how the things can be built. It's someone who just you know, happens to be good with people or has a lot of savvy or has some good connections. Those things could be really useful. I think that it's, those things aren't irrelevant. But he's, he's really, really here fascinated on his character. And, and, and too often today, churches and organizations, it's not that they don't think character matters at all, but they don't think that it's most important. It's not the first thing they think about. Maybe they look at degrees, maybe they look at experience, they look at skill level, they look at, you know, charisma or whatever it is. And I'm not saying that these things aren't important, but he's looking here for for character. That's going to be essential for its health. Uh, It's essential for the health of a church, essential for for the uh, health of an organization or ministry or a company. And there are people living in Jerusalem, we see that here, but it's, it's kind of a shell of what it was. Did you catch that? It says the... The, uh, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses had been rebuilt. I think last time I used the analogy or the illustration of like uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, uh, and I think that that certainly communicates a lot. I, was in, I wasn't there like right after, but I was there about a year after and saw what the city looked like, and it was, it was really rough. Many of you got to see it going down there and working on the Gulf Coast. I mean, it's It's heartbreaking. America, the United States, we're not really old enough to have cities that kind of are in disarray. We have some small towns that have become sort of almost ghost towns, and so we can look at it on a small scale, but we don't really have any vacant cities. Now, there are other countries that do. You can go to all kinds of different other parts of the world and see places that at one time were grand cities and now are not. But, but I did think of one analogy. Um, I spent a part of a summer in Detroit, or outside of Detroit, it was in Sterling Heights, um, when I was in college, when my, or my roommate, one of my good buddies in college, lived there. So I spent about a month there with him. And did you know in 1950, the city of Detroit was one of the great cities of our country. It was like almost, it was like 1.8 plus million people. So almost 2 million people in the city proper, not to mention the suburbs, right? So Detroit was a massive city, right? It was another Chicago. It was another New York. It was a massive city because of the automotive industry, right? A lot of folks from the mountains moved up there. Right? They had what was called the Hillbilly Highway to, to Ohio and up to Michigan. I mean, a ton of folks for jobs, right? Joyce, uh, her grandparents moved up there. And that, so her dad lived part of his life up there because of the automotive industry. Her family moved up there from Arkansas. And so that was in 1950. The city has been in a decline, precipitous decline since then. You know what the population is today? About 600,000. So almost 2 million, 1.85, you know, million people to 600,000. And so when you drive through, and I was there with my buddy, you drive through, you see empty streets, you see houses that are dilapidated. I mean, the infrastructure is crumbling. Now, there's been some renewal by God's grace. There's been some renewal, and, and the city's kind of figured out. You just think like your tax base. If it's cut, you know, by two-thirds, can you imagine? How in the world do you keep roads paved and so on? So we don't have anything like this, and even this is not really a fully thing. I think Jerusalem would have been more like an eighth of the population. It would have been much smaller. But at least that was one that stood out to me. And you can go see little towns and stuff that are that way as well. I mean, almost something like a third uh, to half of rural America is declining in population. So you can go to a lot of places and find some towns. But that was Jerusalem. Once this grand city, now in decline. Look at verse 5. This is our next step here. 
So that's kind of the state of the city. He's appointing leaders. He's getting going here. And then look what he says here. He's sharing from his heart again. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Uh, And I found the book of this genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found it written. And then he's going to list a really long list. We're not going to read it all. If you want, you can read verse 6 all the way down through 64. It's a massive genealogy. Uh, And honestly, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. But he basically tells us here in verse 5, and then he's going to unpack it, that that God put this on his heart really to take a realistic uh, assessment of the city. He's taking a census, right? He's going to take a census of Jerusalem and the surrounding area because uh, Jerusalem, again, this is something you see in modern phenomena. The city of Jerusalem is in such rough shape that people have moved to the outskirts and around the city. And some of them probably would like to be back, but at the very least in the countryside, they can farm in the city got almost nothing and so so many people have lived outside the city and and the the thing that I want us to see here is it's about the people that's why Nehemiah has come here it's not just you know it's not just about the bricks and mortar it's about the people that's what's on his heart here and we're going to see that unpacked as we go throughout um, the rest of the book and if they're going to rebuild it they, they need to know what they're working with right in terms of the people you know do we even have you know enough people here to rebuild the city that we want to is it even is it even feasible, he, he could ask. Here we see uh, just a, a, another example of his prudence and his, of his wisdom. There's a reason that, that Nehemiah has been able to not only accomplish this, yes, I think there's some divine, there's some miraculous work going on here, but he's been able to make this work because he's, he's shown this sort of, th- these, these, um, these important traits here of prudence and of wisdom. I thought about this as I was working on this. I couldn't help but think. So again, thinking about the assessment, the realistic assessment of what you're working with, you know, as, as a pastor, it's, it's important for me to know who my people are, right? Um, when I was kind of being mentored, you know, I had someone, you know, put over my head to remember uh, Hebrews chapter 13 that says that you will have to give account to those who are under your care. You will have to give account to God for those who are under your care. So take watch, he would say. And scare the death, you know, scare me half to death. You know, think about that, the burden of that, right? Wow, I've got to give account to God for the people under my care. Holy cow, like this isn't just a job, is it? Right? So it's important for me to know who the people are, the church. It's essential for me to be able to be a shepherd. But honestly, it's, it's been a challenge. Now, COVID has made everything hard, right? But even if I put COVID to the side, even if we pretend it's 2018, there's no COVID, it's still, it would have been very challenging. I do think COVID made it worse, but I was just, you know, thinking about this, and I've said this to to others, that, you know, I've been here almost two years now, it'll be two years this June, and uh, there's still people I've never met, right? Large numbers of people. Occasionally, it'll be like, oh, I've heard that name a few times, but yeah, we haven't seen him in several years, or, you know, maybe we don't know where he is or where she is, and um, and so it's it's hard for me to even wrap my head around all that, try to call, reach out, and, and visit people. But um, it's difficult. And this is a phenomenon, I mentioned this to say, this is not a Starnes Cove problem, by the way. You could go to two-thirds of our churches in our association, and it would be the same statistics. 200 people on a Sunday morning means 800 people on membership roll. Right? So that's not unique to us. But it is unique to Baptist history. So Baptists have been around about 400 years, about 1,600, to use round numbers. For the first 300-plus, 320 years or so, that would have been unimaginable. It would have been impossible 
So it's really only been within the last two or three generations that this phenomenon could even exist, where you've got a membership role that's up here and attendance that's down here. And so this is something that right by now we kind of feel used to it, but I kind of want to put a rock in your shoe just for you to be thinking about that it was not always like this. Baptists before anyone else, Methodists were actually really good at this too. Baptists and Methodists were both really good at this to have a sense of, of honoring membership and honoring accountability for membership. Uh, both the member to the church and the church to the member. And so that's on my heart as I, as I go through this. Nehemiah knew that it was important to have an accurate account of the people. Who are the people who are in Jerusalem? Who are the people, who are the people that we can get back into Jerusalem, maybe even he could say? Another important point in this text is that Nehemiah is being led by God. Do you see that? Clearly in verse 5. This is not merely just him. This is not some fancy. He says, God put it on my heart. You know, this is no less important today that if we're going to do something great for God, it has to be led by God. We're not going to be able to do this on our own. It's too hard. If it's going to be something genuine, now we could, we could, build a, we could bring a crowd in here in all kinds of different ways. If we promised everybody that, you know, we'll, I don't know, we'll give you 100 bucks, we could fill the building up, right? You know, there's all kinds of ways we can fill a building, right? I mean, we, if I were doing wheelies in here on a motorcycle, we could fill the building, right? No, where's, Leon, if you were doing wheelies on your motorcycle, we could fill the place, okay? But, um, but if, if you want to do something that's genuine, that's really life-changing, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong, we could get you out here, Leon, I'm telling you, sometime on a Saturday night or something. But um, if we really want to do something that is, that is true and genuine and lasting, it has to be, it has to be led by God. Um, we need his guidance. And by that, I, I'm not merely saying that we need some grand vision in the sky. Sometimes God works that way. Sometimes God speaks in some really powerful way. But you know what it usually looks like? Both within the Bible and in our day, it often just means um, loving what God loves and being obedient to his word. Loving what God loves, people. Loving what God loves and all that that means and being faithful to his word. That's how we follow God. And yes, he'll lead us subjectively, and yes, there's leadership in the way that the Holy Spirit guides us. That's always true. But if we're going to, to do something that is true and lasting and meaningful, it needs to be led by the Holy Spirit. So, verses 6 all the way through 64, this is the, the calculation here. And it, we won't read it all, but just glance through it. Look at those numbers. So 2,800 people, 181 people, you know, all these different numbers. This might sound like a lot of people, but again, this is just, this was a shell of what it had been before. So there are some people here, you know, we could do the math. In fact, I, I wish I would have looked it up. I mean, this would be maybe in 20,000 people or something. I didn't really do the math. Some, some of you might be able to get a better glance at that, but a fraction of what Jerusalem was. That's, what, that's who's here. And so I also want you to see this. They've got their work cut out for them, Okay. It's not like Nehemiah does, okay, we build the wall, now sort of, what's the movie, the Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. No, no, no. It's not just, okay, we got the walls, everything's done. No, no, there's still a lot of work to do. They've got their work cut out for them. So I think about this, and I think about my own heart here at, at Starnes Cove, and I just, we've got work to do. We've got our work cut out for us. But if it's going to be good and lasting and meaningful, then that's the way we would expect it to be. Bob. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you mean by that, Bob. Yeah. Well, they had to build. Mm-hmm. People that come in and when they tore down the yeah. walls, they had to yeah. build. So 
That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. And I think a lot of the structures that were built were probably more like thrown together, strewn together. It's probably not long-term homes, but that's right. Yeah, a lot of that was probably used. Um, in those final verses, verses 66 through 73, we get a little more information. We even see that about the animals, which to them was very important. That's like animals are their pickup trucks, their dump trucks, you know, their cars. Like th- these are their work vehicles, right? Uh, look at how many donkeys they have. 6,720 donkeys. These are their cars, right? <laughs> so, uh, and then they've got, you know, they've got camels and so on and so forth, mules. So these are, these are animals that would be used for work, horses. And, um, and so, so they've, got, they've got machinery, so to speak, if we think about it in our terms. Um, we see the workers. We see the wealth. Look, there's even money mentioned there. I, I, it's funny. Sometimes people assume that in the ancient world, like they didn't have money, like everything was just like bargain, or like the king could just say, I'm going to have 10,000 people build it. No, you need money. Just the same as we do today. I mean, you have to be able to pay workers. You've got to be able to pay for materials. And so this, this costs money. And so look what it says in verses, um, well, in verses uh, 70 and following. You're speaking about money, money that they're giving, the treasury there. And this is, this is large numbers of money. There's a lot of money that's going to be given for this project. So it takes money <laughs> to do this work. And, uh, yeah, goodness, even I'm, I'm looking at some of this. That's, that's a lot. And, and so all this would be important as they envision this, this big uh, rebuild, this, this new vision for the city. So it's going to take people, it's going to take manpower, it's going to take resources, it's going to take vision, it's going to take all these sort of things, it's going to take faithfulness to the word. And, uh, and then we get to watch it kind of unfold, chapter 8, chapter 9, and following. And so I, I would always encourage you, feel free to read ahead, you know, this week and, and in the weeks to come read ahead. And I think all the more that'll kind of, I think, stir you up as we as we go through it together, God willing. So, so we'll trace this new stage and the mission uh, as we continue on our study. Um, but questions that you have, thoughts, insights, anything that stood out to you? There's always more details that we could look at. Anything in particular that stood out to you? You all had some really good feedback last time. Yeah. Anybody? Okay. Well, again, God willing, we'll get to chapter 8 really soon. And, uh, and there's good stuff in here. There's really good stuff, and I hope that you found it beneficial. And, uh, and by all means, yeah, you might read ahead a little bit, and that would be great. So um, I'd love for somebody to close us in prayer. Would somebody mind? David, would you mind? Close us in prayer? Thank you.